So uh, we're going to continue today with our Guide to the Psalms series. This is uh, the third message, so I, uh, I call it chapter three, just because I'm kidding myself that someday I'm going to write all these into books. Uh, so this is chapter three, the nature of he- Hebrew poetry. Just to remind us, in chapter one, which was three weeks ago, we had a four-page outline, so I broke my traditional rule of, of, of uh, always using just the front and back of a page, just two pages, uh, because I wanted to give us a good sample of how many times the New Testament quotes the Psalms. And I, uh, I could only fit about two-thirds of the quotes uh, in the New Testament from the Psalms on four pages. That's how often the New Testament quotes the Psalms. I had to leave about one-third of them out. Um, so we, we did that uh, three weeks ago. Then we also looked at uh, the idea that the apostles, what we call the apostolic hermeneutic, is just the way how the apostles use the Old Testament, how they interpret the Old Testament in light of Christ. And Jesus himself taught them to do that. In John 5, 39, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and these, that is the scriptures, bear witness of me. And of course, on uh, Jesus' two appearances on Easter Sunday to the disciples, he focused in both cases on how uh, the Psalms prophets on all the writings of the Old Testament were about him and taught them. Uh, he opened up their minds so that they could understand that. So uh, then last week, chapter two uh, of a guide to the Psalm series, we looked at uh, the whole idea of the wisdom books. So the five books that uh, are, include Job, Psalms, uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, uh, are sometimes called the poetical books and sometimes called the wisdom books. Now, you will get some people uh, who don't uh, put all five in, in both categories. So, for instance, um, if you think of the, of the wisdom, uh, the approach of wisdom that says in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, then the Psalms has that approach to wisdom and more. And so, uh, so uh, it might be worth reviewing um, real quickly um, that wisdom is always the personification of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, in him are hidden all the secrets of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2. Uh, and then um, that he, 1 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about how Jesus became to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification, redemption, and so forth. Um, so we, here's, here's the definition I gave, uh, a biblical and relational definition of wisdom includes that it's biblical life skills and the fear of God. So if you, you know, you start in Proverbs, Proverbs are the only book that's specifically written from a father to a son on what it means to walk in wisdom. And what it means to walk in wisdom is to walk in the fear of God and in the counsel of the scriptures. And so um, that includes that there's kind of a realm in life whereby if you walk according to the counsel of God and according to the wisdom of God, uh, your life will be more blessed. That does not mean you'll be saved from uh, trials, temptations, struggles. Uh, 
you know, pe- people, uh, you still have friends that die, and uh, people who get cancer, you know, their life is not devoid of struggles ever. But there is kind of a realm called the blessing of God that uh, you, you attain by, when you walk by the power of his grace, not by, not by your own efforts, but when you walk by the power of his grace in, by the Spirit of God, in uh, the way Paul talks about when he includes walking in the Spirit in Galatians 5, and, and he also talks about that in Romans 8, when you do that, then you live by the instruction of God in every area of life, uh, in your sexuality, in your uh, vocation, in your work ethic, in the way you handle money, in the way you treat and raise your children, uh, in the way you treat your wife, in the way you, the wife treats her husband, uh, in, uh, in how you treat the brothers at the brother's house, and so forth. All of these things come under God's wisdom, uh, and so you're, you're, in a sense, living in harmony with God's righteous order. And there's uh, a blessing that starts with an increased sense of his presence. And from there flows a lot of other kinds of blessings. Uh, normally, that will often even include things like uh, financial prosperity, better decision making. Uh, you save yourself a lot of pain uh, that you'll that you'll experience if you don't walk in wisdom. Um, part of walking in wisdom is to have truth in the inward parts, as the Psalms say. There's no, no deception in you. If you remember, Jesus said uh, when he met Nathaniel, he said, Behold an Israelite in whom is no guile. And uh, I, actually, I actually think of that quite often. I, uh, and there's, there's some of you I think of that for. And he's, on, he's, he's not here. Uh, maybe he's in the... Actually, he's probably doing the greeters. But I always think of Anvesh that way. Like, from the beginning when I met him, it was like, wow, this guy's really got a clean, humble, good heart with the Lord. And I couldn't wait to uh, start pumping some knowledge and wisdom into that. So, um, so anyway, we looked at what wisdom is last week. And so um, we're going to look at that a little further uh, this week because we're going to look at Psalm 1. Uh, a little bit. And um, uh, so, you know, again, those are all the things that are, that are uh, considered wisdom. And of course, uh, in the Old Testament, it was said of Solomon before his decline, uh, due to not living by his own principles of wisdom. It's interesting that uh, Solomon wrote most of the Proverbs, uh, there's, there's, of course, clearly Proverbs that are written by the sons of Asaph and so forth. They're labeled as such. But, uh, but uh, Solomon wrote a lot of them, and he was, it was said in his day that he had over 3,000 Proverbs. But later in life, he began to uh, disobey what De- Deuteronomy had clearly said in the law, that, that, if the, that if Israel has a king, he was not to... Uh, not to, to uh, store up treasures and not to store up horses, me, uh, which is a figure or symbol of military power and so forth. And eventually the foreign wives that Solomon had stole his heart. Uh, now, uh, lest you think that it was just that Solomon had a lot of lust problems or something, because uh, I don't know how anyone could have 3,000 concubines, but uh, <laughs> so... Um, 
you know, a lot of those were political marriages, but the problem, uh, hopefully we're actually going to get into a little bit today, is that uh, as we look at certain things in the Psalms, uh, the, at, at that time, the way the nations thought is each, God, each na- nation had many gods, but they had one primary god with a small g that is a, a, a false god. Uh, for instance, the Philistines had Dagon and uh, um, so forth. So, uh, and it was thought that that, that god uh, was the source of your country's uh, economic prosperity, uh, your, the, the, the blessings for your harvest, and of course your military might and, and protection. So when you, in political marriages, Solomon was actually not relying on the, on the Lord, and he was turning to false gods in having so many political marriages and so forth. So he was breaking all of his own principles uh, that he had taught of wisdom. And so, uh, you know, Solomon is one of the classic examples of someone who started well and didn't finish well. And that's uh, one of the hardest things to walk with the Lord. Hopefully uh, in our church we try to lead people to the Lord when they're fairly young. And, uh, but uh, the challenge is to stay faithful to the Lord for a lifetime. And, you know, I, I was just uh, talking this week with uh, some brothers about uh, one of the things Catherine and I have uh, grieved a lot over in our, uh, you know, I've been a Christian now a little over 45 years and Catherine uh, 49 years. And uh, one of the things we've seen is a lot of friends who really love the Lord and had a lot of zeal and were entrusted with certain revelations that in most cases they're still walking with God but they've lost a lot of things that God entrusted to them in terms of insight and wisdom and, and important uh, parts of, the, of his whole counsel. And uh, that becomes another issue is, is can you walk for a lifetime not starting to, to change what the Lord showed you earlier? Uh, you know, of course you grow and adapt and understand things better. But, you know, some people adapt so much that it's like they didn't know the Lord at all previously. Thank you for the cold water. That's good. All right. So today we're going to look into the nature of Hebrew poetry. And there's so much glare on that clock that I have to kind of go over here. Quarters. Oh, I got, got a little time. I still need that remote that just takes it back a little bit. <laughs> uh, Hopefully we can, we can eventually get that. If I'm running out of time, I'll just rewind it 10 minutes. Okay. Um, problem is the rest of the world will still be going forward, and then you get out of here at 3 o'clock. All right. So uh, so let's look, about, let's look at the, the, uh, some, na- some characteristics. Uh, when we say the nature of Hebrew poetry, we could say, uh, the characteristics, things you're going to find always in Hebrew poetry. Now, most cultures of the world, their poetry is either based on rhythm, so, you know, like if I say iambic pentameter, some of you know what that means. Um, that's a, a particular type of rhythm in poetry. Uh, or it's based on rhyme, words that have a similar sound at the end, uh, or it's based on both. 
Now, one of the problems with rhythm and rhyme is that when you translate to another language, you, it's hard to maintain either of those. Because, you know, the, the, the equivalent word in another language might have three syllables where our word has one, or, or vice versa. And it can be as much as like their word has five syllables. Uh, I really loved working with Zoe Ting on um, translating Sam and Amber's wedding. And we, we got together like three times. I think we spent like 60 hours on it. It was a lot of fun. And one of the things that I was amazed at was sometimes, I think we ended up going with Cantonese instead of Mandarin, right? And uh, sometimes... Uh, I would say this like three sentences, and she would say five words, <laughs> and she says, and, and then uh, at times we would actually talk about why she was able to do that was because uh, it wasn't just about the words, but, but uh, Cantonese was able to do that whole concept a lot easier, and so forth. So, um, so sometimes... Uh, it, it was amazing how different the length of the translation was. Sometimes things that I said, her translation was longer. Of course, uh, probably it was just her brilliance with languages because she was usually shorter. <laughs> Maybe she just figured out that I was too long-winded to begin with. <laughs> I don't know. But um, so, uh, again, most poetry in most nations, in most languages, are based on rhythm and rhyme. Hebrew poetry is actually built based on what most people would call imagery. Um, I'm going to introduce you to a weird fact today that um, um, a lot of times... Uh, when I was a young Christian, I never had, uh, some Christians get into this idea that I should only study the scripture and I should never study books about the scripture and so forth. I never had that idea, thankfully. But I did mostly study history and, and other things, and I didn't uh, study that many books about biblical uh, studies in my first few years. And so a lot of times I came up with uh, words to define biblical phenomena that there already was biblical word, you know, uh, vocabulary for that among people who do biblical studies. And this imagery thing is one of them. I called them word pictures. And, uh, but the technical word, I didn't know the technical word was imagery. But uh, word pictures is, is probably a good way to help you get your mind around what it is. It's, it's painting a picture to, to, um, to make a point or to get a feel for something or to, to see it, so to speak. And the, the Bible is full of that. And in fact, one of the major ways of, of, of understanding the Bible is to realize that many, many, many word pictures are deliberately uh, reused and redrawn upon and developed all the way from the first three chapters of Genesis to the last two chapters of Revelation. And that's quite intentional by the biblical writers. So th some themes go, of course, the theme of Jesus Christ goes all the way through, but other major themes like covenant and redemption and so forth. Redemption itself is a word picture uh, because redemption refers to, uh, first and foremost, to slave auctions. 
and to uh, that God uh, bought us out of slavery. And all of us were slaves to our sin. And uh, we were totally captivated by it. We had no ability to overcome it, uh, nor even to know that we were slaves. It, was, it would be like if you were born in slavery and you never knew there was any other thing until the Lord redeemed us. He purchased us by his blood and so forth. So bi- biblical imagery uh, is all through the Bible, and it has the advantage that it translates well from one language to another. And it's almost almost in quotes here, because I'm making a uh, slightly sarcastic, or I don't know if that's the right word for it. Uh, There's probably a better word for it, but I'm making a a point that's sort of a keen sense for the obvious. I always joke that I have a keen sense for the obvious. Um, That um, it's almost like God knew that his poetry was going to be translated into lots and lots of languages. Because, of course, he did know that, right? He had planned that from all eternity. And he chose to give uh, the Hebrew poetry uh, the imagery flavor so that it would translate well from one language to another. Because he knew his word was going to be used by hundreds of different languages. You know, some of you are familiar with Wycliffe Bible translators who are still translating uh, the, the Bible, uh, they usually start in most cultures with one book of the New Testament, usually one of the Gospels. Uh, they try to expand to, to where they have the whole New Testament uh, translated and then eventually the whole Bible. Uh, even though, uh, in, in, as they continue to make progress on that goal, we live in a time period where languages uh, are dying every day. And so... Um, you know, uh, the number of people who use this, this or that language, uh, often that a language might be declining in usage uh, because in, in most countries of the world, uh, they, in order, in, you know, part of becoming an industrial nation and so forth is that uh, most countries of the world are either promote schooling in Mandarin, English, uh, or a few other languages are sometimes used. Spanish and French are popular, and so forth. But uh, uh, one of the, you know, one of our interests in going to Hyderabad is because uh, over 100 million people speak Telugu, and it's one of the languages that they they predict by the end of this century. Just think about it. And there's probably some people, well, like some of our Susans, and uh, you know. Um, Carson or Levi or whatever that that may be very well be still alive and doing well at the end of this century, and they predict by the end of this century that the world will be down to about twenty languages, and Telugu will be one of those languages that that survives. But uh, you know, it's kind of like Wycliffe Bible translators' goal is actually less and less needed uh, in in some ways. Uh, because as in most places where some level of civilization comes and, and uh, they're no longer living in, say, the Amazon jungle in a tribal uh, fashion without any modern accoutrements or uh, machines or what have you, 
in any place where there's some uh, modernization or industrialization going on, uh, there, uh, that, that culture is also moving to some of the ma major languages of the world. And, and, the, and the more tribal languages are dying out. So like uh, some of our Kenyans, uh, we have two guys from, three, three people from Kenya here uh, today. Uh, there are six tribal languages primarily in Kenya, but gradually that's going to die out, and gradually uh, most people in Kenya are going to speak English or Swahili, and that's it. And little by little, like Sam does not know his tribal languages anymore. I always tell him he should learn them. But... Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, but that you know that's what happens. In fact, I have a pa pastor friend who uh, span, uh, has a church that's about eighty percent Mexicans, and uh, probably more like ninety percent actually. But they're trying they're trying to be more international and less just a Mexican church. But throughout their whole church, the the people that are over thirty or so speak Spanish. And all the people who are under 30 or so don't know Spanish. They just know English. So when they do, I've attended their services before, and they'll, when they sing the songs, they sing the same song in Spanish, then they sing it in English, in English, then Spanish. And, and, uh, and they do that with the Bible verses. Every Bible verse is read in both Spanish and English. And the pastor actually preaches for about one to two minutes in Spanish. Then he switches to preaching for a couple minutes in English. And he goes back and forth because... There's a generation gap in the church where the, the, the children of the, of the adults don't know, they don't know Spanish anymore because they grew up uh, in America. So uh, anyway, so, uh, so let's get into, do a little bit more with this biblical imagery. But you need to understand that this wasn't by accident. God providentially foresaw that the best way to communicate his word was to, to, uh, to use biblical imagery so it would translate well into all languages. Isn't that amazing? I've always thought that's a wonderful thing. Um, now, uh, I have a little note there, no extra charge. We're, under, uh, we're on Roman numeral 2, uh, capital B, in bold print. The note right under this says, Avoid Dynamic Equivalence Translations. And I gave you a little website there that has a wonderful article that mostly uses Psalm 8, but it draws on some other psalms to show you that the dynamic equivalence translations lose a lot over what's called the literal equivalence translation. So some of you who've been to our Right State Bible studies and stuff know what we mean by that. But he shows case after case where the, what the psalmist is going for is completely lost in the dynamic equivalence translation because they're going for making it easier English words, but they're missing the whole flavor of it by doing so. And he's, he's especially uh, talking about words that are like regal words. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the psalms focus on the kingship of Christ and their royal psalms and their foreshadowings uh, of Christ and their... Uh, in, you know, in the heritage of that, that God promised David there would always be a son to sit on his throne and so forth. And so a lot of times the dynamic equivalence translations uh, use words that lose that regal flavor and so forth. 
So uh, if you're interested in that, I think, uh, and so hopefully you know that literal equivalence translations uh, start with the English Standard Version, which is what we call our Pew Bible. If you notice, John always uses the English Standard Version in his uh, teachings because that's kind of our official translation here at Grace Christian Fellowship. However, uh, I, you know, old people like me, uh, ain't, yeah, by the way, I wasn't here when the earth's crust was still cooling, but I, uh, <laughs> and, and I would, somebody once asked me how I knew so much about the war for independence when I was only a baby then, but uh, <laughs> so, uh, um, you know, I, I, I don't deal with change well, and uh, anybody who knows me knows that, I like old-fashioned things. And uh, uh, so I, I'm used to the New American Standard Bible because when I first started doing biblical studies and stuff, uh, there wasn't any English Standard Version yet. And uh, when the NIV came out, uh, there wasn't any NIV yet then. And of course, the NIV was a, a very inferior translation that waters a lot of things down. So I kind of I kind of t- tend to go back and forth between the New American Standard and the e- ESV, but they're both what's called literal equivalents. King James and um, New King James are both are also literal equivalents. They describe themselves uh, with another word, liberal, li- literal something, not liberal, literal. Uh, I forget the word. Uh, uh, oh no, I almost just said it. Has to do with they call it comprehensively literal, but I'm, that's not the right word. In any case, it's really the same philosophy of translation. There's a few others on the market that use that. There's now a uh, a New Testament that's called the Disciples Literal New Testament. It's pretty good. Uh, there's Young's Literal Translation, and and uh, uh, that uh, the 1898 version. Young set out to correct a lot of mistakes in the King James Bible. And don't tell any of your King James-only friends, there are lots of mistakes in the King James Bible and some pretty significant ones uh, that have held English-speaking Christians back from some major truths, especially about things like deliverance and uh, pastoral ministry and lots of, lots of subjects. But um, So anyway, uh, literal equivalence is, is, is what you really want, especially when you're trying to think about biblical imagery. Now... May, I need to make sure I don't forget to make this point. I've got to go over here where I can see the clock. Uh, right down the middle, it has those fan lights. So if I just go a little bit left or right, I can see it well. Um, keep in mind that it's not just the poetical books that use biblical imagery. Biblical imagery starts in Genesis 1 and uh, goes all the way through the Bible. It's just that uh, the, the wisdom books or the poetical books use biblical imagery almost to the point where it's the majority of what's being used. So uh, hopefully you have enough time to, uh, I'm, I've got some samples on your page, so let's, let's taste some samples. Free samples. <laughs> Do you ever go to Sam's Club just, or whatever, just because it's free samples day? <laughs> All right. Um, Psalm 113, from the rising of the sun, of course the sun doesn't rise, that's imagery, right? To the, uh, of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Now that's a lot more beautiful than, hey, praise the Lord all the time, buddy. 
<laughs> right? Right? You know, that's kind of nice from the rising of the sun. I mean, you, uh, all you single guys should study biblical imagery and poetry because you'll do better at writing uh, text messages to your girlfriends when, you're, when, when you need to. Uh, just don't use the, some of the imagery in the Song of Solomon to describe her <laughs> unless, unless, she, unless she knows the culture really well. Um, so Psalm 114, uh, when Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled. Now, did, did the sea really go running? <laughs> Uh, you know, so like you have to kind of get a biblical mind on to, uh, to, read, to read it because if you keep a Western modern mind, you'll miss the whole point. The sea looked and fled, the Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams and the hills like lambs. I, I really haven't seen that many mountains that were skipping. <laughs> um, if you want to get... You know, and that's interesting because there's actually some Christians who will say, you should interpret the Bible literally. Really? <laughs> you know, there'd be like an earthquake going on all the time. <laughs> um, by the way, that's, that's a wrong understanding that, is, that has gotten twisted uh, over Martin Luther's emphasis that you needed to read the Bible in a literary way. And now you're... Uh, certain evangelical fundamentalist types will say to translate literally, but nobody translates literally. You couldn't do that. Um, you know, the mountains skipping like rams. John went to college where there was a lot of mountains. That would, would have really wrecked the dorms. <laughs> you know, um, now, one of the things, uh, there's types of imagery, and this is a type of imagery imagery called personification. They're giving anthropomorphic uh, ideas to, uh, to physical realities. And one of the things that's happening here is a major theme of the Bible. Uh, we, we acknowledge this theme every Sunday morning right here, is to do things in remembrance of what God has done. We're not to forget the work of God. That's why we take communion every week. Okay? Uh, you are to, what you're supposed to do around your dinner table is tell your children what the Lord has done. You tell them about the Passover in age-appropriate ways or whatever. And so one of the things of the Bible is that... Um, there, especially you see this in the Psalms, but you see it all through the prophets, is they recount Israel's history. Because the Bible, as we've seen, talked about many times, is a book of history. But it's not just any book of history. It's not Korean history or Kenyan history. It is, in a way, because uh, when you're absorbed into Christ, it becomes your history, because we become the true Israel of God by faith in Christ. But it's the history of God's dealings with his people in the covenant unfolding of his son in his redemptive purposes to gather a nation of people for himself. And it's the history of that nation. 
So the, the prophets, unlike all the modern uh, prophecy nuttiness, uh, the prophets are recounting the history of Israel. They're not predicting the future. They're calling us back to faithfulness to the covenant by reminding us what God has done and what the implications of that are. And that, go, that is especially all through the Psalms and the prophets. And guess what? Then it's through the New Testament. Matthew starts by recounting the, the history of what God has done. Luke starts that way. Remember Stephen? He had a wonderful message, sold lots of copies, uh, although he didn't get to stick around to know that. <laughs> Right, that message, his message wasn't very well received. He got stoned to death. I've had a few people mad at me from messages at times, but I've never had anybody start throwing stones at me. But uh, what does Stephen do? He recounts the covenant, redemptive, faithful, miraculous acts of God through Israel, and helps the, the his audience see that that was all about Jesus. He takes them through the whole history of the Bible, showing them that this is about Jesus, that's about Jesus, this is about Jesus, this is about Jesus, and that's not what they wanted to hear. They were looking to deny Jesus in their minds and hearts. So in this psalm, Psalm 114, when he says the sea looked and fled, he's talking about the Red Sea. When he talks about the Jordan turned back, He's talking about when Joshua crossed the Jordan. Psalm 42, 1, a lot of us love that we sing songs out of this one. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. Uh, that's a simile. Uh, Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, uh, is a metaphor. Whenever you get as or like, that that's, tells you it's a simile. Uh, a metaphor is a direct comparison. It says, this is this. Whereas a simile says, this is like this. Or as this is, so this is. Uh, Psalm 37.1, fret not yourself. Now, isn't fret a good word? Like, when you think about fret, you, you know, like we've... Who hasn't fretted a few times? <laughs> like, if you know, if you ever went to school, you probably fretted when you had a test coming up a few times, <laughs> at least, right? Um, you know, as you be, you started growing up and getting on your own, you fretted whether you could make the bills this month or whatever. There's lots of things that uh, we struggle not to fret with. That's why Jesus tells us, "Do not worry, do not be anxious," because. Uh, Part of walking with God is to learn how to not fret. So he's saying, don't fret because of evildoers. Don't be envious because of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. Now, that's pretty graphic, right? Grass withers, right? You notice if you mow the lawn, you can talk to Jonathan about this after church. He'll tell you. Uh, if you uh, forget to sweep up the grass on the sidewalks, a day or two later, it, it looks pretty bad because it withers. 
right? And so uh, often the scripture is talking about how the grass withers. Uh, to say that this, you know, the, for, and, and it uh, often compares wicked people to being like the grass. They, you know, they, because the, the wicked, you know, like whether you like it or not, contrary to the prosperity gospel, uh, the wicked do prosper. Crime does pay for a while, <laughs> but like the grass, it doesn't pay very long. That's the problem. Certainly not eternally. All right. Psalm 74, verse 12 through 4. Uh, this is a very important one. Um, Yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures in the wilderness. Now, does the, song, does the Bible give us any uh, historical occurrence where God crushed the head of the Leviathan? Not really. So what is, what is this about? Uh, often, the, often um, I think I gave this a name, a mythological illusion. Um, often what it'll do is they'll actually, the Bible will actually talk about something like Leviathan uh, because it was a pagan myth. It was a pagan idea. And both the gods of the Philistines and the gods of the Babylonians and the gods of the Canaanites believed that their national god uh, crushed the Leviathan. And so what this verse is actually saying is all those would-be gods are false gods. Only our god is the real god. But it's saying it in a much prettier way than, I, than, than just giving you the theological facts. He's actually mocking the nation's gods. Some of you remember, I think it's, it's yes, yeah, in Judges, when uh, the, the Philistines captured the Ark of God, and they decided to uh, humble the, the, the Israelites' God by putting him at the feet of Dagon in the temple of, 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 of Dagon, right? And Dagon kept falling over at night <laughs> and, uh, and bowing down to the Lord, the real Lord God, Right? And gradually, Dagon had more and more damage, right? Remember, like the first couple times he fell, uh, you know, for his my nose got broken or whatever, but then it clearly says, like, his hands were broken off, his neck was broken. He, he, he got messed up. <laughs> <laughs> and what it's saying is, it's mocking Dagon, don't mess with our God. Because our God is the real God. My favorite part of, uh, if you've ever seen the movie The Ten Commandments, uh, there's a, uh, a scene, they, they do a really good job of some, some parts of the biblical story and some parts they uh, take a lot of license with, but um, especially some of their interpretations of, about it being like about democratic freedom or something. But anyway, um, one of the things they do a good job of is showing Yul um, Brenner plays uh, Ramses, the, uh, the Pharaoh opposing Moses and the Israelites, and he, as the scripture says, he keeps hardening his heart and hardening his heart. And he w wants to uh, believe in the superiority of his gods. And finally, uh, after, 
after God keeps escalating the, the, the chastisements and the disciplines through the ten plagues, which uh, many people have pointed out, they, they represent uh, a plague specifically against each of the uh, major gods of Egypt. Finally, uh, you know, uh, Pharaoh's army is drowned in the sea. Of course, in the biblical story, uh, Pharaoh is drowned with the army. But in the movie, uh, they take a little poetic license. You know, the Pharaoh lives to go back, and, uh, and he has a wonderful wife who's kind of uh, the very definition of a nagging wife, partly because she's in love with Moses and not, not with Yul Brenner and whatever. But she starts mocking him, like, where, where is Moses' head on a sword? Where, you know, where, show me the blood on your sword from when you get, and she's mocking him and so forth. Uh, you know, what has, you know, why have your gods totally failed against the God of Moses and the, Hebrew, the real God, the Hebrews' God? And uh, remember when I, was, I had just been a Christian a while, Oh, actually, I think it was like four or five years. But anyway, maybe seven, because I think I was in grad school when this happened. But I was watching the movie with uh, another Christian brother. And um, then Yul Brenner, who is, of course, Pharaoh, he, uh, she's nagging and nagging, and finally he just goes, Moses, God is God. <laughs> and I, I did, like jumped up and said, "Yeah!" And I hit my chair, and it actually, it actually like flew all the way across the room, and hit the hit the wall. <laughs> Anger management issues, but uh, <laughs> I was so excited, like Moses, Moses God is God. Yeah, <laughs> you know. I, um, Oh, well, so, um, so look for that in the Psalms. There's lots of um, times where it says the Lord triumphed over this and that, and what it's doing is, is saying that God is the real one, uh, that the, the pagan gods are no gods at all. Does everybody get that? I, I think I made that pretty clear enough. Uh, Proverbs 17.12, this is the John Gray principle. Let a, bear, let a man meet a bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. I always think of John Gray whenever I think about bears. <laughs> Killed him a bar when he was only three. Davy, Davy Crockett. <laughs> but you know, um, one thing I've never, if you know John Gray well, I've never known John Gray to uh, be afraid of anything. And, uh, and, and in fact, he He's downright crazy. He'd probably go parachuting or whatever. But uh, <laughs> whereas me, I'm a little more wimpy. Uh, <laughs> let's pray about this. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, when they got back from vacation two years ago, and they had, uh, John was out with, the, was Leah with you? I know the kids were. And they had an encounter with a bear. And uh, John Gray said, I was actually scared. And he, now, uh, you know, the only encounters of bears I ever had were in the Cincinnati or Columbus Zoo. But, <laughs> but uh, and usually I wasn't that scared. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, that's a powerful image. You know, I, I love watching nature shows and everything. And when a bear, you know, there's actually a, uh, what's that show that Catherine likes? Last Man Standing. There's actually an episode where uh, the bear enters the store 
and they can't figure out what's attracting the bear to the store, but it turns out because its cub had wandered into the store, was asleep in the storage room, and the bear, the bear was after the cub. And once Tim Allen figures this out, all he has to do is open the, the door so the bear can get at its cub and take, and take it away uh, when they were all fretting about the bear up until then. Job 24, 19, drought and heat consume the snow waters. So does Sheol, those who have sinned. Now, snow waters, what, you know, what do you think of? You think of running waters, crisp, you, know, you think of sparkling sun, and it's really nice and cold. Like, you know, nothing's better than when you're working up a sweat on a hot day and you get some really cold water, cold enough to get brain freeze or something. And that, that's kind of what the imagery is here. Uh, Psalm 32.3, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. I like that. Uh, I was going to read Psalm 52 out loud, but I'm, we're gonna, you can do it on your own. There's a lot of similes and metaphors throughout Psalm 52. Uh, let's go to Job 